two paranormal investigators who delve into the depths of the famous and not-so-famous cases of Moida, ghosts, legends, and lore with a healthy dose of debunking. We've got some, uh, I feel like, ghosts and lore tonight. We do. But before we get into the ghosts and lore, did you hear about the monolith? Uh, which point are we at? Because there's been multiple stages since the last time we talked about it. It's appeared and disappeared in a bunch of different it's things. It's appeared all over the world at this point. It's like disappeared from Utah and then it reappeared somewhere, I think, in Europe, right? There was, it, well, it, I know it just appeared in Britain, like within the last day. Um, and it appeared in like, to like Eastern Europe or something. Um, but what's funny is that there's been a few people who have caught like men moving it. What? So it's got to be some kind of viral marketing thing because, um, or, a, or a street art thing or something. Cause there was, there was even some video of like, it was, uh, the Utah one of like four guys removing it. What? Um, so uh, I don't know. Uh, Apparently, it, Romania. It appeared Romania. in Romania. You're right. Yeah. So it was in Romania, yeah. and then it was in the UK, and now it's in Colombia. Well, wasn't it in Southern California too? It was. Was it? Yeah. Oh, yeah I thought there was one in Southern California. I mean, like it's all over at this point. I was really hoping it would be more like weird and spooky than what it actually is, but it it's either like a Banksy kind of thing or it's a marketing campaign for something. I oh yeah, one appeared in California. Yeah. It said yeah in a Tascadero. I mean, it's still kind of cool, but it's it's obviously a gimmick of some kinds. Well, shucks. <laughs> hey guys, guess what? We haven't even started the topic yet, and Kim already scullied it. <laughs> what I do? I mean, I got a letter from a parent once that said I crushed your kid's spirit. Wait, so I feel does like that mean you crushed her ghost. I crushed her. <laughs> um, but I really want to get a business card that says like Kim Dalvit Crusher Spirits. Spirit Crusher. That's a really good like ghost hunting name. <laughs> Right, spirit crusher. Except the thing is, is that I like spirits. I mean, I like the spirits that are cool and like my haunted doll and everything. So you just want to crush spirits. the people that have live spirit, so they no longer have spirit singular. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I'm glad we clarified that. Yeah, it's important. <laughs> Definitely. Well, anyway, monolith or no monolith, we will always crush your dreams. And this is another wonderful episode of Ghoulish Tendencies, where not only will we give you some pretty solid historical information, but mm-hmm. we'll also crush your dreams. Yay! We will crush your dreams. We will crush your spirits. We will make you not believe in anything, not even your Even mother. Christmas joy. So, even Christmas speaking joy. of which, <laughs> so here's an interesting topic. We've done a lot of like, murder topics and ghost topics very heavily in the last couple of months. And I thought it'd be pretty cool to do a a holiday theme topic that is not about Krampus, like everybody and their mother does. (laughs) Like everyone and their mother does. I actually just guessed it on a show last week to talk about Krampus. So that's why we're not (laughs) doing that. Yeah, we don't don't need, nobody needs to talk about Krampus. I mean, you can talk about Krampus, but you don't need another podcast episode talking about Krampus. to talk about Krampus. So 
let me give you a little bit of background on uh, my brain. My brain is that of a, an English major who loves literature and loves to write. And so I not only love a history moment, but I love speaking about authors and looking into the background behind them and understanding the intricacies of how they came up with their ideas. So I just love looking that stuff up in general. So I thought it would be really cool to do an episode for the holidays this year about Christmas ghost stories. And not just like one specific Christmas ghost story, but just understanding where they came from, when did they happen, why did they happen, and what were the impacts of them. So, I mean, when you think of winter and holidays and Christmas time, most people generally don't automatically go to ghost stories. I mean, we do. You do. I do. Some of our listeners do. Um, Cool cool people. people You're round, right? Spooky, you're round. We talk about this all the time. Spooky, you're round. Um, Mm -hmm. But most people of the Average types <laughs> do not, <laughs> unless you're thinking of one classic ghostly Christmas story. Can you guess which classic ghost Christmas story I'm talking about? Uh, Lay Christmas Carol. Lay Christmas Carol. That was so Americanized. I can't even handle it. Lay Christmas Carol. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Ebenezer Scrooge wasn't the first fictional character to see ghosts around Christmas time, though. The tradition of a holiday ghost story goes way farther back, even farther perhaps than Christmas time itself, when the night grows long and the year is growing to a close. Goodbye, 2020 forever. It's only natural. And goodbye, bye bye. It's only natural that people feel an instinct to gather together when you're not in the middle of a pandemic. But you want to gather with your family and friends, right? And you want to remember those who might no longer be here with us. And maybe death is of top of mind for some people. You might miss some people. You might miss your family that you can't be around. But that's not necessarily how it started. The Christmas ghost story's origins have little to do with the kind of commercialized Christmas that we've celebrated since the Victorian age. They're a little bit darker older, and more fundamental things that these ghost stories represent. Winter, death, rebirth, and the connection between a teller and his or her audience. But more so, the surprise filling of terror within the warm and cozy atmosphere of the holidays. Who could ask for more? So, where did the tradition come from, you may ask? How? Why? So there's this lady. She's pretty smart. She's a doctor. She's actually a professor of English at Elizabethtown College. Her name is Dr. Tara Moore. She put together and edited an anthology called The Valancourt Book of Victorian Christmas Stories. She's also a Victorian specialist who focuses on Christmas traditions. And she wrote a book called Victorian Christmas in Print and has also been featured in multiple different podcasts. So you can check out our references in our show notes if you want to check those out too. I definitely listened to them, wanted to gain some inspiration, but also wanted to take all this information for you guys and kind of compact it into one solid episode for you. So we're going to talk about what 
she was representing and what she was talking about when it comes to the Victorian ghost stories. She says that ghost stories didn't just become popular all of a sudden in the Victorian era. It wasn't like, poof, all of a sudden, spooky. In the 17th century, ghost stories were mostly an oral tradition. No comment. And- Too easy. Too easy. <laughs> Esquire Dick. What? Esquire Dick. That was last episode. Uh, but li- Esquire Dick lives forever. <laughs> Hashtag forever, forever Esquire Dick. Forever Dick. Forever Dick. That's weird. I don't like that. <laughs> so ghost stories were mostly an oral tradition and later evolved into a, quote, staple of both periodicals and Christmas for a century before the Victorian Christmas publishing boom, which I don't know if you knew this, but there was a Victorian Christmas publishing boom. So telling oral stories by the fire, that was like a fun thing to do with your family, a fun thing to do with your friends. You didn't really have much else to do, TBH. Um, And they sometimes didn't have access to books or didn't know how to read. So this was a really great way that stories then got passed down within generations. And people just wanted to scare each other with their stories, you know? Like, I think we think of, like, going camping and sitting by a campfire and telling a scary story, and it's fun. You like to freak out the people that you're telling the story (laughs) to, right? So Yeah, totally. Very similar vibe. And this is a great quote. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve, but to hear each other tell authentic anecdotes about specters, wrote British travel writer and humorist Jerome K. Jerome. Great name. Couldn't figure out what to name him, so they took his last name. Just put a K in the middle of it. Jerome K. Jerome. He actually wrote an introduction in an 1891 anthology of Christmas ghost stories called Told After Supper. So if you want to check that out, you can. Also, sidebar, this entire episode is like one really huge creepy critics corner for Christmas time. So if you want to take notes and write down the things that we're talking about, feel free. Halloween also wasn't celebrated by people in England the way it is in America or has been in America. And Christmas time was a time to take a break. At that time, Father Christmas and Santa Claus were not a thing yet. And this was the opportune time to tell stories around the fire in the cold, dismal weather. The winter solstice also played a part. They considered this as a time where ghosts could enter the human realm. And there were talks of the veil thinning out around Christmas time. Notice, talks of, meaning, not evidence, just talks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fair. Fair. Uh, it was a time when people thought the spirits walked among them, and it was just very similar to way, the way we think about Halloween on, like, October 31st. The veil is thin. There are spirits among us. This is basically how people felt about Christmas time in England. So, quote, The season of Christmas coincides with the shortest days of the year, and for the middle-class Victorians, a chance for families to reconnect in storytelling circles. Urban dwellers, disconnected from village legends, simply picked up a magazine specifically made to lace children's dreams with terror. The bleak, shadow-filled walk from the story circle to one's dark bedroom presented an uncomfortably eerie space to reflect on the mental images conveyed by those grisly tales. Right? I love that sentence. But these tales of specters and spirits tended to take on less of a spooky tone. 
The intention wasn't necessarily to scare all the time, just sometimes. Tara Moore says, quote, supernatural agents enter the narrative to alter reality and bring about a Christmas utopia of reunion and spiritual redemption. So it wasn't necessarily always spooky, but maybe more so to teach you a lesson. So Christmas ghost stories weren't the only tradition, though. So are you ready for some traditions that were really sure. fun? And I think you would appreciate this. Bring in it. England in the 1700s, other ways that Christmas was celebrated was by pouring beer on a tree. Or beer on a tree. Yeah, he's thirsty, getting drunk. Get him drunk. Yeah, a little tipsy tree, you know? Tipsy tree. Tipsy tree. Totally. Uh, Totally. (laughs) Or you would bake a cake and you would try to put it on a cow's horns and hope (laughs) that it wouldn't flip or fall off. Or that the cow would, like, gore you with its horn. (laughs) I mean... The things that people do to entertain themselves, right? I feel like these are also things that you might do during a quarantine, during a pandemic, regardless of the year, but would, that's just Would me. you, though? Or is it the kind of thing you do when you get really drunk and just think something's a great idea? I that's mean, like what you do in a frat house when you're, you're all have had too many kegs and you're like, bro, bro, you know, it would be the best thing ever. Get that tree drunk. Get that tree drunk. Get that cow a cake. That cow loves cake. Who doesn't love cake, man? I I love love a cake. Anyway, so maybe that's where frats came from. They came from Christmas traditions of England. (laughs) I'm not going to scully that. (laughs) Too easy. (laughs) So (laughs) the scully rising. Scully's coming out. Here she comes. I see her. I'm, I'm, I'm clamping down on it. That's what she said. That's what she said. Indeed. Indeed she did. She sure did. So even though ghost stories were told during Christmas, majority of the stories actually were not set during Christmas time. They were just told around Christmas time. Right. The reader's experience during Christmas was more important than the character's experience during Christmas time in most of these stories. So oral tradition slowly translated into print in the early 1800s when keepsakes and gift books and annuals started to come out. Now, these would typically be something that the middle or upper class people would purchase to show off in their homes to showcase their class. Mm -hmm. And they would also house ghost stories in them. And they were sometimes Christmas presents. That just happened to be a coincidence. So eventually people see, wow, they like these fancy books on these tables to showcase their class. They have ghost stories in them. We can make money on these. So publishers also began to give Christmas names to these annuals because they were given as gifts during Christmas time, which inevitably gave the connection of ghost stories to Christmas. And that's another explanation. Kind of fun. Okay. So ghost stories were printed mainly because of that previous oral tradition we were talking about to tell ghost stories during this time of the year. But by having them in print, it allowed anyone to experience the feeling of terror in the dark alone in a dimly candlelit room without the requirement of people to tell the stories. Yay, books, less people. What if you don't like I I mean, I say that all the time. (laughs) That's my actually my motto. Yay, books, less people. (laughs) Hashtag yay, books, less people. (laughs) Yay, books and cats. Less people. And cats. So they were sold as a way to get in touch with an old aristocratic country house ambiance, if you will. A way of feeling like you had money and friends 
who could tell folklore stories, even if you didn't have either. Another thing to be mindful of is income. Like what were people's mm-hmm. incomes like during this time? Because if there's a recession, you're not going to have that much income. You're not going to have that much spending happening. But during this time, things were going pretty well. So people right. had more income and they were spending more money on gifts during Christmas. And on top of that, they had greater literacy. So that's like that's sad. a perfect storm for publishing, really, because That's if true. people can read and they can spend money, they're going to want to spend money on books, right? Yeah. And Another, books were becoming easier to produce, too. Exactly. There were actually taxes that changed the way that paper and shipping affected book sales. And so oh. on to- all of this just kind of culminated to that publishing boom that I was talking about earlier mm-hmm. during Christmas time in the late 1800s. So people bought books as gifts. That was a big thing. This also then took the local legends slash oral ghost stories from the regions in which they were birthed to everyone throughout print. Mm -hmm. Having a localized story tied to a region actually felt more authentic to the reader, which encouraged writers to give specific locations of the setting and pretend their stories and legends were true, while it's pretty obvious that they were mostly just made up. Now, Charles Dickens, our friend Charles, you know, Good old that guy, Charlie. He, he wrote that book, that, that story we were talking about, that uh, A Christmas Carol. Lay, lay Christmas. Lay Christmas Carol. <laughs> lay Christmas Carol. He actually noticed that prices for books were going down. It was cheaper to make them. And that there was this huge demand for Christmas ghost stories. So he is actually thought as the person who created the Victorian Christmas ghost story. But hate to scully all of your Christmas dreams. He was just a part of the evolution of the publishing trend. But what? He's not the only one. He's just one that got famous. So he thought of it actually as a commercial opportunity. He didn't even have his heart fully in it. He just wanted to make money. (laughs) So he (laughs) thought of it as a commercial opportunity to publish oral traditions at first. Mm -hmm. And I really thought he could just like get a ton of money from it. And that's where the motivation to write the story came from. Now, if you haven't seen this movie and you like this type of topic, I might recommend the movie to you, The Man Who Invented Christmas. It's on Hulu has it, and it's a Showtime movie. Mm-hmm. I just watched it yesterday, and it's you're either going to love it or hate it. It's one of those. But I thought it was interesting because having done this research and understanding it, they actually had some pretty accurate references. And in that movie... It shows all of this, and it showcases a behind-the-scenes interpretation of how Charles Dickens came up with the idea of A Christmas Carol. Hmm. In this movie, it shows him struggling financially with a few flops after writing Oliver Twist, and he's inspired to write A Christmas Carol based off of stories told to his children by his Irish housemaid. I don't know if that's accurate. I'm just going to say that now. That might just be a a movie thing something that was fictionalized for this. right i couldn't yeah. find that anywhere so don't quote me on it just watch the movie okay. that's what it that's what the movie said and the popularity of the ghost story at that time though that's very uh-huh. prevalent in the movie so that's a nice uh-huh. little parallel that's real and in the movie now funny enough the movie also shows him having a huge success after writing it now that's where i'm gonna call bullshit because that was not the case <laughs> in actuality 
couple things. Dickens didn't intend on A Christmas Carol being a ghost story originally. He actually wanted it to be a spiritual story about self-discovery and appreciation of the middle class. Mm-hmm. And initially, it struck a chord with the middle class and shook some sense into the upper class to understand the responsibility to a degree. And if only we could do the same thing now. Ugh, you know, I am mean... I right? <laughs> However, financially, huge disaster. Up in flames. So let me tell you about this disaster that was Lay Christmas Carol. Lay Christmas Carol. Dickens only had six weeks to write and publish it in time for Christmas, which is wild. Like, that's not a lot of time. That is not a lot of time. (laughs) By December 19th, 1843, it was published and available for purchase. Now, because he wanted it to be a beautifully hand-printed small volume at an affordable price, the cost to produce was much more than what his publishers had wanted, and they thought it was an unwise investment. But hey, Dickens wanted his book. He's going to get his book. He wanted something that every family could own. So what did he do? He made it. But to nobody's surprise, guess who did not profit at all? Charles did not profit. I mean... He wasn't the best guy in the world, so I'm not super sorry, but yeah. Okay. I feel like this is a karma moment because yeah. <laughs> he sold 6,000 copies of this book. And guess how much he made? $2. I mean, not far off, but 137 pounds. That's it. Oh, that's harsh. <laughs> For 6,000 copies. Ooh, and yeah. Now, that's the thing is, though, like financially, it didn't make a lot of money, but it got super popular. Obviously, we know it to this day. And now karma strikes again because not only did it become so popular, it became hugely popular that everyone was copying it. So it was heavily plagiarized as a play. So it was going Mm. up all over the place. People were turning it into plays. And it was Mm -hmm. even published in America by other people that just wanted that story in America. (laughs) Oh, that's rough. He ended up spending 700 pounds in court costs to try to control the plagiarism. So moral of the story is, moral of the moral story is, you're going to lose money when you try to prove a point and make money. Um, (laughs) So that's how we scully Charles Dickens. (laughs) (laughs) And eventually, uh, he turned to publishing periodicals instead of novels at Christmas time because apparently that's where the money was. Nobody wanted a novel. They wanted these magazines. And he actually wrote one called The Haunted House, which was a bunch of different ghost stories in one periodical. Now, I've got more fun facts for you about uh, Charles Dickens. He actually did not believe in ghosts at all. That doesn't shock me. Right? But wait, there's more. So the ghost stories were more psychological hauntings versus typical spooky ghosts. Hence, like, your ghost of Christmas past and present and future being more to do with, like, your own personal demons and conscience. Exactly. Not like, I'm coming back for revenge on somebody yeah. who murdered me. You know? Exactly. Like, it wasn't, that wasn't that kind of ghost. And reflect, it's actually, reflect. And what's even more interesting, like, if we wanted to go down this rabbit hole, I'm sure we could, but we don't necessarily need to bore our listeners with this. But if you were to analyze Charles Dickens' psychology mm-hmm. and, like, him as a person and who he was and how he wrote this book, he was an incredibly depressed person and, like, basically put all of his inner demons 
into this book. And that's oh, how buddy. it's made. But also, there's way more to it. We're not going to necessarily go down that rabbit hole. Just had to throw right, that out right, there. Right. If you want to research it, be my guest. Fun facts. I have to read you this paragraph because it made me giggle. And I know it's going to okay. make you giggle. Okay. So for his part, Dickens tended toward scientific explanations of, quote, supernatural events. He Mm -hmm. was a scully. And he blamed them on, quote, a disordered condition of the nerves or senses, end quote. But he maintained a measure of agnosticism, writing to a friend, quote, don't suppose I am so bold and arrogant as to settle what can and cannot be after death, end quote. He also joined the London Ghost Club, where Mm -hmm. he participated in several seances. Because, again, what was happening during this time? Spiritualism. Spiritualism. Mm -hmm. He remained unconvinced of their legitimacy, believing that alcohol may have played more of a role than anything truly supernatural. Quote, the seer had a vision, he said, which nothing but spirits could account for and from which nothing but soda water or time is likely to have recovered him, end quote. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was funny. He's so sassy. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. So most Victorian ghost stories at this time started off thought of as actual hauntings, Mm -hmm. but inevitably became explained, or scullied, if you will, by the end. Even when science and technology began to advance, ghost stories were still a thing during the winter. You know why that is? We just mentioned it. Say it with me. Spiritualism. Spiritualism. The spiritualist movement was a huge instigator. Hashtag everyone is a medium. Right. Yeah. <laughs> if you recall from our previous episodes of uh, the Fox Sisters, if you haven't listened to that, go back, listen, you'll get a little bit of more background on it. Um, and our friend Arthur Conan Doyle even wrote some good Christmas ghost stories. And yeah. Elizabeth Gaskell and Ellen Wood also wrote some great ghost stories. Fun fact, women were huge contributors uh, to ghost story literature. They produced mm-hmm. between 50 and 70% of all ghost fiction from the 19th century. Isn't yeah. that cool? I love that. Yeah. I love that fact. <laughs> and apparently spiritualism influenced non-believer authors to undercut and gaslight believers in their stories. Mm-hmm. And inevitably prove them wrong. So a bunch of actual Victorian ghost stories during Christmas time were written as like a jab to the spiritualist community <laughs> to be like, you guys are dumb. This is, <laughs> this is and let me show them. you in story form my vicious takedown. Let me scull you through a story that you're going to think is true when it's not. Like <laughs> literally that's what they did, which I think is very funny. And on top of that, you start to have some like fancy things that are happening with photography and stagecraft to allow ghosts to be portrayed in theater and photography and made people think it was actual evidence. Evidence. But I mean, that's like calling an orb a ghost in every photo you take. And you know how, right. Yeah. Know how we feel about that. That's my favorite thing in the world. So there's this like balance of the overtly overwrought ghost story by spiritualists and stories about murdered ghosts and tales of revenge. And then you have the more moral, psychological jab the spiritualists ghost stories like A Christmas Carol. Right. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples. 
Uh, one was Elizabeth Gaskell's The Old Nurse's Story. This was written in 1852, and apparently Dickens actually encouraged her to publish it, so they say. Hmm. The story is about a mother and a child who die in the cold after being sent away from their house by the mother's sister and come back as ghosts to right the wrongdoing done to them. So you have a child ghost in this one, which is extra creepy. (laughs) They haunt the woman's sister, who was at fault for their death, and she ends up dying because she comes face to face with her sister's ghost and her niece. Hate it when that happens. Right? Shucks. So Victorian (laughs) cultural scares may not have been exactly what would scare us today. So we might be like, eh, that's not that scary. But at the time, ghost children and haunted dolls, which were also in other ghost stories, definitely freaked people out. (laughs) And another really great one is called The Strange Christmas Game by J.H. Riddell. And this story is about... Two siblings, they find themselves in an old country mansion on Christmas Eve, initially joking about ghost stories they told each other earlier, knowing that it was the 41st anniversary of the original homeowner's disappearance. Then they Hmm. start to hear sounds, trying to debunk and unable to do so. And then they actually see two ghosts playing a card game at a table in the parlor, and one of the men that they see playing the ghosts is the dude who went missing. So the ghouls eventually, ghouls, not the kids, the ghouls, eventually break out into an argument resulting in a sword fight and the reenactment of the homeowner's backstabbing death. But that's not the end. And I'm not going to ruin it for you either. So if you want to know how this ghost story ends, join our Patreon because (laughs) I'm actually going to do a reading of the entire story. I'm going to post it on the Patreon. So if you want to hear a spooky Victorian ghost story, I'll read you one if you join our Patreon, which is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast on Patreon. Plug. Um, Plug. Shameless plug. You can listen on there for your spooky listening pleasure. But for now, I'll leave you with a quote from the story. Okay. Quote, My dear reader, you doubtless are utterly free from superstitious fancies. You poo-poo the existence of ghosts. And only wish you could find a haunted house in which to spend a night, which is all very brave and praiseworthy. But wait till you are left in a dreary, desolate, old country mansion filled with the most unaccountable sounds, without a servant, with no one save an old caretaker and his wife who, living at the extremist end of the building, heard nothing of the tramp, tramp, bang, bang going on at all hours of the night, end quote. So if you want to hear more, go check out our Patreon. (laughs) Now, here's a fun fact that I learned that I had no idea. I knew about Henry James. I love Henry James. I love The Turn of the Screw. I love Edgar Allan Poe. I never put two and two together that both Henry James and Edgar Allan Poe wrote about ghost stories that were happening around Christmas. So... With uh, Henry James' Turn of the Screw, that came out in 1898. The novella is about a chilling series of supposedly ghostly events that befall a young governess, and it begins with men gathered around a fire sharing spooky stories on Christmas Eve. (laughs) Now, Edgar Allan Poe, his raven, the poem The Raven, Mm -hmm. is set during December and the bleak Mm -hmm. month of December, which is not necessarily Christmas, but winter. So also... 
spooky times. Well, and because he's American, not British, so you can see how it's traveling too. Like it's, absolutely, it's, it's not just the UK. It's uh, yeah. totally. But as far as the Victorian era goes, it looks like womp womp money was the main instigator of the Christmas ghost face. story. Shocked. Shocked. A way for lower class people to feel seen or as though they lived in a more aristocratic world. A way for the rich to become more wealthy. Womp womp. And before the Victorian era, a way for people to just not be bored by a fire. So Hmm. fast forward to the 1900s. Now, Puritans. Damn those Puritans. Because uh, they wanted to censor Christmas. They're like... They were the the legit, like, bah humbugs, if you will, you know? So the traditions for Christmas decided to shift. And around, I don't know, 200 years later, fast forward to now, industrial consumerism, yay capitalism, came Ooh. in with a vengeance to mainstream culture and smothered the ghosts of Christmas's past. <laughs> with exception... Of one X-Files episode (laughs) in season six, episode six, How the Ghost Stole Christmas with Lily Tomlin, my favorite X-Files episode of all time, (laughs) which is actually very reminiscent to that story I was talking about, the strange Christmas game. So if you haven't seen that episode, go check it out because it's great. (laughs) But clearly, the horror never really died because even now... We have horror in our lives. Kim is very well. We have horror in our lives? We have horror. Oh, there we go. There it is. Horror. 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 We have horror in our lives. And now we have horror films for the ultimate creepy Christmas. But I mean, the focuses on ghosts aren't necessarily there or as strong. Right. So instead of reading, most people turn to horror TV or movies for a holiday scare these days, or like film adaptations of classics like A Christmas Carol, like FX just did one last year. Mm -hmm. It's like a three hour long deal. It was a little spooky. I wouldn't necessarily call it horror, but you can't go wrong with like a Muppet Christmas Carol. That's a personal (laughs) favorite of mine. It's classic. Love the Muppets. Kim. I'm going to pick your brain on this, like, okay. Christmas horror situation. What are your thoughts on horror movies that happen during Christmas time or during the Christmas? themes behind them? Well, you know, because it's interesting. If you look at... Because there there are plenty of, of horror Christmas movies, but they're not primarily ghost movies. Most of the horror Christmas movies you're going to find, it's a lot of slashers. Like, you know, you've got Black Christmas is is arguably one of the most well-known um christmas horror classic uh mm-hmm. and it's it's really a early slasher the the first one came out in I think it was 74 is when the first one came out and then they remade it in uh recently uh, right like well they remade it in 2006 and that one's wretched oh. <laughs> but last year they i'm going to say this with quotes they remade it um it, it was, well, I, I was, I really liked it. I thought the new one was really, really good, but it in almost no way resembled the original. So I think it kind of did the movie a disservice to call it Black Christmas, but that's a whole other rant. Um, 
but you you see a lot of slashers or you see a lot that are playing more with um the folklore characters like ones like Krampus or ones that are playing with some kind of people, Santa Claus or rare exports or really it's, I'd say more the closer comparison for me would be more winter or, or uh, Arctic horror films. I mean, things that uh, like the thing even playing on a lot of those similar themes, the cold, the dark, the isolation, the unknown, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, movies like, um, I mean, even, you know, God help me, a movie like 30 Days of Night, uh, which is a, vamp- a horrible vampire movie, but it's also <laughs> ridiculously fun. Um, or or Let the Right One In, you know, that's, sure. that's really playing on that. It's perpetually dark and it's cold and you're you're alone in the dark. And uh, so, yeah, I I think, Winter is probably a better comparison, the winter horror films. And I mean, looking at like what you said about The Raven. Sure. Um, well, even our our favorite uh, episode, Yatlov Pass, you know, there's the yeah. Devil's Pass movie. And that's another one. Like, it's in the snow. Cold winter. It's cold. It's mm-hmm. winter. Uh, uh, Ravenous is, is another great movie. Um, you know, there's a couple ones that look at like Wendigos and, and some of that, uh, that are all winter themed. So, uh, I think, I, I think you see a little bit more in, in that vein and not as much in Strictly Christmas now. For sure. And actually I just thought of this one is, I know it's not the best horror movie, but Crimson Peak is, I love it for an aesthetic purpose, um, just because it's, it's really gothic, pretty. It's a gothic, yeah. It's a it's, gothic it's very Victorian pretty. ghost story movie, mm-hmm. but it does take place in winter. It's it takes place in winter. Mm-hmm. It does take yeah. place in winter, and it shows like the scenes where there's it's like bl- like slashing happening in the snow, mm-hmm. and there's just blood all over in the snow, and it's extra. The, the red blood is so red, and yeah. there's dirt that's red under. Mm-hmm. The oh, snow. you have a red clay, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the combination of that is just very visually jarring and pleasing at the same time. Like, I don't know yeah. how to say yeah. that any better, but that's, like, the only one I could think of that's actually Victorian ghost winter movie, recent, that, that I could think of. But also not, like, a great horror film that came out during Christmas time either. Well, it's, I mean, I, I think it's a, it's a very well done film. It's very visually, it's beautiful, but yeah, it's yeah. not a Christmas movie. It's a winter movie. It's sure. not a Christmas movie. And Guillermo del Toro uh, did it. And I love him. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah. I he does. Him. He does really cool work, but it's interesting. Cause you, you can also think about like, why are people drawn to horror or ghost stories during winter time? And then you can get into like the psychological analysis of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I actually read an article that was really interesting about psychological analysis of this stuff. And it features a top television psychologist in the UK named Honey Langston James. And she talks a little bit about like how the psychology of it plays out in all aspects of our culture now. Mm-hmm. And she says, I think inherently to the festive period is the idea that there is darkness in life and humanity. Everything that Christmas represents, like putting lights up, is about putting light into the darkness. It is about sharing gifts and being generous in an otherwise selfish world. But there is a dark side to Christmas, which has come to be reflected in our viewing choices. I think in recent times, we've seen an increase in people going to see horrors and thrillers 
at Christmas that confront us with the darker elements of life. Mm-hmm. Our everyday lived reality at Christmas can be at odds with the bright, fun, positive imagery that we see. As a result, when we see something darker or sinister, that can balance things out and also give a bit of relief from the disconnect that we might be feeling, which I never mm-hmm. even thought of, but that's such like an interesting point to have because... Yeah. As someone who has worked in retail like 90% of my life, I have always hated the holidays because (laughs) Christmas music would come on like on Mm. Halloween and Mm -hmm. like all of the holiday collections would come out in October. And I'd be like, why? Let me have my Halloween, you know? Right. then you end up be, becoming your own Scrooge and just hating Christmas for being in retail forever and having to be around people that suck. Um, But I could definitely see someone gravitating to horror when there's such an influx of happy yay environment <laughs> you know right I mean? right you need that contrast you need mm-hmm. that the dark side of it just because it's it's too overwhelming totally and it's it's about experiencing quote controlled terror so mm-hmm. it's like we know what we're setting ourselves up for when we're watching a horror movie like you know what right. you're getting into. It's not like you're right, yeah. putting something on and you're getting surprised. Um, and if you don't want to watch it anymore, you can either turn it off, change the channel, cover your eyes. You can control it. It's something that you then are evaluating as something to control, which then right. makes me have a whole other analysis of it. But <laughs> this is another quote. We know we're not actually in danger or under stress. We're just living vicariously through what we're seeing unfold on the screen. That can give us a sense of relief. It's the fear we face in everyday life that we can't control. So one of the reasons people enjoy scary things on TV is because it can give you a sense of being in control, which (laughs) could fully allow us to analyze anxiety coping mechanisms during a pandemic. Right. But that's another chat for another time, not on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So at the end of the day, you could also say that if people were feeling that way about TV and movies now, people were probably also feeling the same way about ghost stories and scariness and spookiness mm-hmm. of the Victorian era Christmas ghost story. Yeah. But at the end of the day, overall, between Victorian times and current times, money and capitalism are at fault for our true deep-rooted <laughs> terror during Christmas time. <gasps> Humbug. Yep. Well, there you have it, folks. <laughs> I hope I didn't ruin your Christmas. If anything, we just gave you some perspective. Mm -hmm. And also check out uh, our Patreon. If you're not a Patreon, sign up for it. It's just uh, a few dollars a month. You get to have exposure to stuff like additional content, like the story that's going to be up on our Patreon. Mm -hmm. Bloopers, which are coming. I'm telling you, these bloopers are just coming and coming because we're really on a roll. (laughs) But... um, also some fun stuff in the mail and I think this brings us to Creepy Critics Corner Creepy Critics Corner Kim what you watching Uh, well I have as as uh is sort of on brand I have been covering a lot of um Christmas time horror because tis the season. <laughs> uh, I'm also I'm teaching this this um, horror film class online, and uh, we are watching Krampus this week. Which, if you've never watched Krampus, it is a fun, fun 
Christmas horror film. Um, it's also one like it's PG 13. It's tame. It's, it's, it's a good one to watch with like, if you've got teens who are into horror, it's not going to do any irreparable damage. Uh, but it's, 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 (laughs) it's a good time. It's, it's funny and it's, it's dark, but in a, in a cool way, it's the same guy that did trick or treat too. So if you're a fan of trick or treat, you'd probably like this movie. Uh, I also, uh, the black Christmas movies are, are holiday staples for me, the original and, and the new one now. But I have a deep, deep love for the Silent Night, Deadly Night movies, particularly Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, which is god-awful. And it's so (laughs) awful, it circles back around to being the most brilliant thing ever. Wow, full circle, okay. Full circle. Um, Parts of the movie sound like it started out as a badly written porno film. Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) The acting is so bad that again it circles back around to being brilliant um if you've ever seen the meme for garbage day as well this is the origin of it so if you if you've never checked out silent night deadly night 2 it is worth your time and if you've not seen part one don't worry the first hour is literally just flashbacks to the first movie <laughs> oh perfect so they like skip the stuff for you oh yeah yeah you can you can basically watch part two and see most of the highlights of part one. <laughs> I like movies like that. That really saves me time. It you so much. It's like two movies in one. It's brilliant. So that's it's like, a, that's been a lot of, yeah. it's like Christmas, Christmas in a movie. Two, two Christmas for one. In a movie. Yes. <laughs> I love that. What have you been watching? Slash reading, I've slash... been watching so much. Um, mm-hmm. I actually went through the entire series of the crown. <laughs> Oh, okay. Because right. I never started it. I never watched it. And I actually loved it. I thought it was mm-hmm. so fantastic. If you haven't seen The Crown, watch it. It's great. It's done so well. Um, so I watched all of that, and I'm not going to even get into details because there's too much to go into for that. And it's not horror, so you don't care. Yeah, um, but it's fun. Yeah. But it, it is a good time. I also good watched, time. kind of on brand, but also not, Queen's Gambit, which I also mm-hmm. thought was very good. Mm-hmm. That, for me, was something that I, I think if you know anyone who has any kind of substance abuse issues, might be tough to watch. Okay. But um, it's it's really well done. Ooh, uh, okay. Now, I do love a comedy moment, and I feel mm-hmm. like I've been needing them more lately. So I watched Elf Fair. again after. Oh, that's, like that's my classic. That's my staple holiday yeah. movie is Elf. It's a sweet movie, yeah. I just lose my mind when he jumps into the tree and the tree falls on him. Like, that's my one scene that I lose it. Um, (laughs) And my mom actually called me and made me watch it because she's like, did you, have you seen Elf? I'm like, yes, I took you to see Elf. And like in 2003. (laughs) And she goes. Many moons ago. That one scene. I was like, what, the burp? And she's like, yes. (laughs) That's my mom's favorite scene is the burp. So It's an epic burp. It's truly a movie that makes you happy. But because I watched that, I watched the new Netflix um, show that's like the holiday movies that made us. And there's oh, yeah. a, a show that they had previously that was about like classic movies. And they talk about how they were made, where they came from, the process. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Yeah. And then two episodes for the holiday season. One is based on Elf, which I love. Um, and the other one is based on Nightmare Before Christmas, which I also love. Oh. Yes, yes, you would one. really like that. So, you, you wait, the show, watch. the show, the yeah. the one about um, a nightmare before Christmas, you would really like. Yeah, cool, nice. But yeah, no. Other than that, I've just been um, 
researching. I watched the movies that I talked about in this episode. So this whole episode is just (laughs) one really, really big creepy critics corner and the history behind it. So, um, yeah, I've also been making those ornaments. So I'm going to do a little plug again. Do it. If you need to get a cool, weird, spooky gift for someone in your life, I'm doing two day shipping so we can get it to you real quick. Um, it is, Ornaments. They're ornaments that are hand-painted by myself. They're called Doom Decor, D-O-O-M-D-E-C-O-R on Etsy. And they are corpse paint, hand-painted with acrylic paint uh, on white bulb ornaments with a hand-sewn velvet hook. Kim bought one. Do you like it? I do. It's on my tree. It's very cool. And we have an Instagram too. So you can check them out on there. You can go to the store. I have a set for four for a deal and three for a deal right now too. So if you need a good gift, want to shop small, check that out. And if you want to check out the Instagram of this podcast, it is Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. And we post lots of fun stuff on there. We'll probably post a ton of stuff for this episode because there's a lot to reference. There's a lot, yeah. And we also have a website. It is ghoulishtendencies.com. All of our show notes, all of the references, they're all on there. All of the episodes are also on there. And all of our references for social media is also on there. We even have a Twitter. The Twitter Twitter. is Ghoulish Pod. Mm -hmm. And we would love to have a little convo with you on there too. If you're on there, hit us up. Mm -hmm. You can even hit us up on our Instagram as well. Other than that, we have a Facebook page. It's Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. Y'all know the drill by now. Patreon. If I haven't said it before, I've said it again now. Check it out. Ghoulish Tendencies Podcast. But hey, everyone, our ghouls out there, happy holidays. It's going to be a weird one this year. But do your part. Stay safe. You know, keep each other company. Listen to your podcasts. And I hope you have a really great holiday season. Yeah. So having said that, stay.